0: Uh, But today, we get a chance to go into God's Word. Now, you know it's going to be a serious message anytime they bring out my table. And so uh, this week, I have been preparing to walk you through just six short verses in Romans chapter 7. And I got to be honest with you, on the one hand, this is a simple passage. On the other hand, uh, there's deep theological complexities here. Now, just by way of rehearsing, if we could, uh, Romans is a book that's written by the Apostle Paul. And he is writing it, recognizing in the first three chapters, Chapters, that man, none of us are perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have blemished resumes. All of us, by nature, seek to please ourselves and not God. And because of our sin, we have been separated in relationship from this holy God. And we are standing uh, deservedly so in line for his judgment and his wrath. And if all you read was the first three chapters of Romans, it will lead leave you in a place where you had nothing to look forward to but the fearful judgment of God. Yes, he is a loving God, but he is also a good and holy God, a God of justice, who will ultimately judge sin and evil, and we should praise him for that attribute. So Paul brings us to that place. But then in chapter four, up to the chapter where we are right now, he begins to deal with the question, so how then can a man or a woman be justified before God? How do we go from being in line for his judgment to being recipients of his favor and his goodness? And he comes to this conclusion. We are able to arrive at a place of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Oh, that was a good place to say praise God and hallelujah. That was a good place to shout because that means that we are not saved by works, works of the flesh by our own performance, but we are saved not on our merits because we can never accomplish it all, but we're saved on the merits of the finished work of Christ on that cross. How many praise God that he lived a perfect sinless life fulfilling the requirements of the law and satisfying the heart of the Father. And so Paul has been unpacking that theme. And today, before we get into chapter 7, we got to look back at chapter 6, verse number 14. Notice what he says. here's this wonderful promise, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's Paul's way of saying that you, because of Christ, have been freed from the power of sin. There was a time in your life and in mine where we were under the control of sin and we didn't do what pleased God, but we did what pleased ourselves that ultimately produced death in us. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he says, now you are free from the power of sin. doesn't mean that you and I don't struggle doesn't mean that we won't commit acts of sin, but what it does mean is that when we do, after we have been born again, after we have trusted Christ, we are doing so because we have surrendered ourselves to the the work of the enemy, not because he has power over us. We are free, but yet he is constantly inviting us back. Anybody ever have a a bad ex-boyfriend or girlfriend? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A bad ex? Don't raise your hand, just look straight forward. Amen, say ouch if that's you. But, but we've all been there, right? And that person who keeps trying to invite us back into a old relationship, uh, I love that Nike commercial. Uh, uh, just say no, right? All of us should just say no to the temptation of sin when it tries to invite us back. This is what Paul is getting at. But then he tells us why we have been free from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and in the future even from the presence of sin, though not now fully, It says, since you are not under law, but under grace. We talked about that extensively last week. We're not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul is about to pick up on that theme as he goes into this next chapter. And in this next chapter, what he really wants to drive home is that Us belonging to Christ will lead us to bear fruit in Christ. And when you belong to Christ, you will bear fruit for him. One of the ways that we know we have received the word of God is when we do the work of God. When we see what we have been taught lived out in our hearts. And you know that you have received the gospel when you are able to live a fruitful life for Christ. So he starts by identifying this audience. Look at verse number one. It says this, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Now, let me just start by indicating what Paul, I think, wants us to see here is that when he was writing this letter to the church in Rome, there was a mixed audience of believers. On the one hand, there were Gentile believers that had the Torah because the New Testament wasn't finished being written yet, and they understood God's grace through that and through the instruction of the apostles, helping them to see Jesus and the law, the prophets, and, and the Psalms and, and now in this new covenant era, they had that, but then there were also in their midst Jewish converts to Christ, Jewish believers who had lived under the obligation of the law. They had lived under the weight of the law. If you were a Jew who came to Christ, you had to deal with this relationship to the law. Now, there are some of us that are in here who can't relate to that because we've never related to the Torah that way. We've never looked at the Old Testament as being binding on us. There may be a few Messianic Jews among us. But yet, it's important for us to first understand what this passage meant to them then and there before we can understand what it means to us here and now. But as I try to bring those two worlds together... Maybe one thing that can help us to relate is that the Torah, the law, really, if you tried to use it the wrong way, which was to bring salvation, really exposes us for not being able to measure up. It it exposes our sinfulness, and what that does is either create in us a try harder mentality or I need grace mentality. And what Paul was trying to get at was this try harder, do better mentality, this performance-based way of relating to God. And where I do think Jew and Gentile believers in Jesus probably have commonality is that a lot of us still are relating to God on the basis of performance. Somehow thinking that if God is going to be pleased with us, we got to do better and try harder. And the message, if you get anything out of today, the message is is that the gospel comes to us with the message of grace, not do better or try harder. It is the message that Christ has already done better. You can. He's already accomplished the will of the Father. You can. But if you trust Him by faith, you can receive the grace of God, whereby which Christ looks at uh, God, the Father rather, looks at you and sees the finished work of Christ applied in your life, and you are a recipient of God's favor, not based off of you, but based off of him. How many think that's a great deal? So Paul says, I want to speak to those of you who know what it's like to be obligated or bound to the law, because for you, the law is something that you can't easily cast aside. Michael Byrd, who wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, says it this way. He says, the law defined Jewish life, identity, and their ethics. The law was the core to Jewish life, identity, and their ethics. Now, there's a lot I could say about law, but I got a, a mentor of mine who reminds me, Chris, you can't preach your study And what he means by that is that there's a lot of detail behind every one of these verses that if we wanted to unpack it fully, we'd be here for hours. And I know you love me, but not that much. And so we want to understand here that what Paul is trying to get at is not that the law is bad. It is just no longer binding on us. And so then he uses verses 2 and 3, a marriage analogy a marriage analogy, and he's about to give this marriage analogy for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to help us to better understand how a believer relates to the law. He is not giving verses two and three in order to expound upon God's exhaustive wisdom on marriage. He is only using one principle of marriage in order to help us to understand what a believer's relationship to the law is. Stay with me for a moment. Verses two and three. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Now, ladies, don't get any ideas from that verse. <laughs> verse number three, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another, she, uh, another man, rather, she is not an adulteress. So Paul is giving a basic principle of marriage that all of us would understand. If you are married and your spouse is still alive, the expectation is that you are with that spouse. And you are bound to one another through covenantal relationship. In similar fashion, Israel had been covenanted to the law. It was a covenantal relationship God gave them. Going back to Exodus 20, God, through Moses, gave them these tablets, the Ten Commandments, and the subsequent law of Moses came through that. So they had a covenantal relationship with the law. He goes back to the analogy, he says, but if the husband dies, then the wife can remarry and there's no sin there. There's no sin there. She is free from the covenantal bond that she had with that man when he dies. Everybody get what Paul is saying? Makes sense. Now, he goes on to say these next words, which I think are so important. Verse number four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the Law through the body of Christ. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Through the body of Christ. What is Paul getting at here? He is not saying that the law has died. What he is saying is something uh, deep and profound. He is saying through our union with Christ, our old man, that man of sin that was bound to the law, has died. And now, because of our union with Christ, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, and we have a new covenant through Christ. This echoes back to chapter 6, verse number 4. You guys may remember in chapter 6, verse number 4, we studied baptism. And in baptism, it was all about our union with Christ. And baptism is a symbol of the fact that when Christ died on that cross, we were buried with him. That old man, that old man that was controlled by the sinful nature, and when he rose again, we are raised with him to the newness of life. Paul wants us to understand that we are no longer bound by the law, but we are free. Now, that's a beautiful thing. If you understand what Paul is getting at when he's referring to the law. Is Paul criticizing the law as bad? No, he's not. What Paul is saying is that the law had its purpose and its use, but now you are free from it because when Christ comes, the purpose of the law is fulfilled. This is where we can learn a lot from the Reformers. One of the great church or Protestant Reformers is a man named John Calvin. Now, John Calvin writes during the 16th century, the 1500s, and he writes at the age of 26 this wonderful, profound book that has impacted today called The Institutes of Religion. And in it, he does, a, uh, as part of his study, a study of Romans, and he gives commentary on, on this particular passage, and he talks about the threefold rightful use of the law. And what he argues is what Paul argues in 1 Timothy 1 and 8. Keep your finger where you are right now in Romans 7. Turn with me real quickly to 1 Timothy 1 and 8. Now, 1 Timothy is also written by the Apostle Paul. It's also written by the Apostle Paul. And here's what he says about the law. First 1 Timothy 1 and 8, he says this. Now, we know that the law is good. Is the law bad? Yes or no? No, the law is not bad. The law is good, but he goes on to give a qualification. If one uses it lawfully, or another way of interpreting that, is properly. If it's used the right way, the law is good. Now, let's go back to Romans chapter 7. John Calvin, writing on Romans chapter 7, says this about the law. There are three ways that the law is used properly. The first way is to understand that the law reveals the character of God. When God gives the law to Israel, he was revealing to them his perfect character. Character, His perfect righteousness. The law in and of itself is the ideal way that we will relate to God and to one another. That's the way, the two-directional way the law comes to us, teaching us how to relate to God and how to relate to one another in a way that honors God. But here's the problem. It's the problem that we have anytime we're next to perfection. Anytime we're next to perfection, it reveals how imperfect we are. Now, the husband said, Amen, you'll get that later when you get home. Your wife will help you to understand that. But anytime you're standing next to perfection, it reveals how imperfect you are. So the law acts like a mirror on me and it exposes my sinfulness, not because it's bad, it is good. It just exposes me because it reveals the perfect character of God. Second way the law is rightfully used is as a restraint, it restrains sin. Because the law comes along with penalties. And just like it is in our day, there are certain people that would do certain crimes if they thought they could get away with it. But they don't do certain crimes, not because they've had a change of heart, but because they don't want the penalty. So the law comes in to bring with it penalties that will restrain in civil society certain activities. Is the law bad or is it good? It is good. According to Paul, when used the right way. The third way that the law is used correctly is to give us or reveal to us what pleases God. The law gives us what pleases God. So when we read the law and he tells us you shouldn't commit adultery or have any other masters before me, you shouldn't steal, you should honor your neighbor. When we read those things, we are reading what pleases the heart of God. And all of these are right uses of the law. But what is the wrong use of the law? The wrong use of the law is to think that by performing it, that somehow I can earn my salvation. The law was never given to Israel or to us as a means of earning salvation. It was given to expose our need for salvation. And if you are relating to the law that way, then you are relating rightly. If every time I look at the Torah to the Old Testament, I see, man, this standard was so high. You, do you know when you read the Old Testament that most of us couldn't even worship with them? You couldn't come into worship, corporate worship in the Old Testament if you had mildew in your house. How many would be disqualified? Right? You couldn't come into the uh, the fellowship if you were sick in body. How many of us would be disqualified, right? There's so many laws. Are those laws bad? No, but they just revealed the high standard of God. And every time I look at it, I see perfection, but I realize I am imperfect. Now, there's two ways that I can respond to that. I can either try harder, keep trying, and being on the hamster wheel of trying harder and falling short and trying harder and falling short or I can cry out, God, I will never measure up, I need grace. And when you get there, you've gotten exactly where the law wants you to get. And so into that need steps Jesus saying, I have stretched my arms wide for you. I have shed my blood for you to offer you the grace that you need to pay the sin debt you couldn't pay, to fulfill the law you couldn't fulfill so that you can receive the favor of God that you didn't. Not earn. How many praise God for Jesus? And so, what Paul in the first four verses wants to argue is that belonging to Jesus releases us from the law. I no longer have to try to have a performance-based relationship with God. I'm released from the law. Does that mean that I don't try to do good works? No. It just means that I don't do good works to try to earn my salvation, I do good works because of my salvation. I don't do good works to try to get saved, I do good works because I am saved. Then he goes in a B part of the verse to continue on his thought. He says, listen, likewise my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, then look at what he says, so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. Now, my friends, belonging to Christ not only releases you from the law, but it weds you to Christ. It weds you to Christ in a way in which you get a chance to share in his resurrection from the dead. This weekend, I got a chance to speak at a woman's conference. It's the first ever woman's conference that I spoke at, and I survived it. (laughs) Praise God. And uh, it was funny, They uh, all the rest of the speakers were women and, and, and I was the only male speaker. And you know, you go to these conferences sometimes and they give the speakers a, a thank you note and a little gift bag to say thank you for coming. And inside of my bag, and I'm sure inside of all the other speakers' bags, was a uh, certificate for a free makeup session. I just... <laughs> I don't don't think I need this. I'll give that that to you. Again, the law is good unless it's used improperly. That's a different analogy. (laughs) Different analogy. But I spoke to these women on hope. And here's what I said to them Hope is alive because hope is a person who's alive. I want to say that again. Hope is alive, friends. Because hope isn't just a warm and fuzzy feeling, it's not just shallow optimism. Hope is alive because our hope is in a person who conquered death, rose from the grave with all power in his hand, and because he lives, we live. Paul bases the whole of our relationship with God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are of most men to be pitied, but because he has raised from the dead, not only does he live, but all of us who have put our trust in him, we live as well. And the power of the resurrection is not just a future promise, though it is that, that these weak old broken bodies will one day be exchanged for immortality, but it is also a promise for now, that my salvation has come to me now, meaning that even when the enemy encroaches and thinks he's won a victory, that Christ ultimately causes us to triumph in all things. Somehow he's going to get to glory even from my brokenness. Somehow he's going to get to glory even from my pain. You may not understand it right now when you're going through the hardship, but I will tell you that according to Paul, we have been wed to Christ, and just like Satan thought he won when he crucified Christ on that cross, Later on to find out that he had not outsmarted God, he thinks he wins when he brings hardship into our lives, but he will find out again and again and again that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. God is faithful. And we are wed to him. We no longer are under the law. Now imagine what that must have sounded like to those who have been bound to the law. It sounds like freedom. And then he goes on. in the rest of verse number four. To say and teach us that belonging to Christ empowers a new way. To serve him here's what he says in order that we may bear fruit for God he says now that you are wed to Christ you can really bear fruit to God all that doing more trying harder le- living legalistically being critical of yourself and critical of everybody else sitting in the seat of the, of the, of the judge always condemning and criticizing and judging that doesn't produce any fruit for God that, all, that only brings greater uh, anxiety and depression in your life. But if you really want to pr- uh, uh, produce fruit for God, be wed to Christ and in grace. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is an an important verse for us to properly understand. When he says aroused by the law, is he saying that the law caused us to sin? No, that's not what he's saying. Maybe a a better translation of this verse comes from the NASB translation of, of Romans 7 and 5. Let me read that one. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were brought to light by the law we're at work in parts of our body to bear fruit to death. Here's what he says, the law brings to light. It shows what's already in me. I am already a sinner. The law revealed that I'm a sinner. It is a schoolmaster to lead me to Christ that drives me to my recognition for my need for grace. But the law reveals my sin nature and my sin nature will always lead to to death. And what is your sin nature? It is simply this, it is your desire to live to please you. There's only two ways to live. Either you're gonna live to please you or live to please God. And when you live to please you, my friends, that type of self-centered living which is promoted everywhere in our culture today, every movie, every song, every TV show, every meme. It is promoting for us to do you, to live to please you. And Paul says that life will lead to death. You will be empty on the other side of that. And not only will your life be broken, you will break and shatter the lives of those that you are connected with. How many don't want to live that way? How many want to bring joy and blessing instead of curse and brokenness to others? How many want to live a life of healing and wholeness instead of woundedness in your own life, right? Well, here's the key. Live to please God. Live in a grace-filled relationship with God. Verse number six, but now we are released from the law having uh, died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. I wish I had three more hours, but let me quickly quickly explain what Paul is getting at here. It is like he is saying the sinful nature was a cruel uh, taskmaster. It was a cruel regime, but you are free from it now. Now, in order to understand this, probably the people who would understand this best are those who have immigrated to this country from a country that was up under some type of cruel dictatorship. Yesterday I was uh, driving to the airport and my driver was from a different country and I asked him where he was from and he says, hey, I'm from uh, this country and it was a, a country that was up under this really bad dictator, really bad regime. And I said, hey, do you ever go back there? He says, no, I don't want to go back there because it's deadly to go back there. It's terrible there. He says, I love being here for the freedoms that are a part of this country. How many praise God for those freedoms and, and, and celebrate that? He, he loved that. But but what he wanted me to understand is that I'm no longer under that old regime. Now, you picture whatever you want to picture there on earth and you magnify that. What it means to live up under sin and Satan. Is even worse, even more corrosive to the heart, even more deadly to the soul. But now in Christ, we are set free, no longer under the evil dictator of sin and Satan, but now free to God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, able to live a life of fruitfulness and grace. Now, what does it mean to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God will come upon people, But in the New Testament, the Spirit of God indwells us. He doesn't just come upon us for temporary acts of service or empowerment, but he empowers us to be able to live free from sin. You can love your spouse because the Spirit lives in you. You can love your children because the Spirit lives in you. You can bless others because the Spirit lives in you. And you can live a life of fruitfulness to God. And so Jesus, summing all of this up in Matthew 22 says this, Verses 34 through 40, you can read it for yourself, that the whole law is summed up in two things, love God and love your neighbor and you are free. Man, what a way to liberation and freedom that I can just simply not try to do better or try harder but simply love God and love my neighbor and if I live that way, I will please God and I will be free and I will bear much fruit for Him is I live to please him and encourage others to live that way as well. This is the freedom we have in Christ, and this is the salvation that Paul, through the scripture, offers to you and to me. And if you don't know this freedom, if you don't know what it means to live in grace, if you need a savior today, I encourage you, give your heart to him, turn to him, because he's the only one that can bring the mercy and the grace that our hearts long for, amen? Everybody staying today. Let's praise God for his word. And as we get ready to close in worship, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have revealed in your word. Father, if we had um, a thousand years, we still wouldn't be able to exhaust the truth and the power of your word. But may it be true in us, save those who are desperately in need of salvation. Show all of us mercy and help us, Lord, to live for you. Thank you for our new relationship. Thank you for the indwelling of the Spirit. We love you, Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.